0: Sought after for their success and for consistently putting people first, treating employees and customers with respect, and helping others succeed. Now, these same CEOs, the mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life, at work, and in business. Now, here's your mentor.
1: Welcome back to the Mentors Radio. I'm Tom Laurie, your guest host today. Life can be downright difficult at times. If we let it, it can box you in and beat you down, holding no bars. Many of us were ill-prepared for just how things are. We're surrounded by the thick fog of fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and getting through these tough times can seem like a fairy tale fantasy. How are we supposed to weather this storm? What happens when the burden of responsibility is just too great for any one person to bear? How are we supposed to get through the tough times, especially when we're counted on to lead? Today, to help answer these questions, I have Harry Kramer Jr. as my guest mentor. Harry left the corporate world after a 23-year stint at Baxter International, where he rose to become chairman and CEO. Then he went on to Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management, where he was named favorite professor. He has written three books on the concept of values-based values based leadership and his latest book which was just released is your 168 finding purpose and satisfaction in a values-based life harry thank you for joining us today
2: hi tom great to be with you
1: so they say that real leaders are forged in tough times and we're going through some tough times right now what does that mean to you when they say real leaders are forged in tough times
2: uh, well, first of all, I agree with it. I think it's a great comment, Tom. Uh, when things are going well, um, not clear you need to be a great leader. But when things, when things go wrong, that's when you really find out what kind of person is, is he or she. Are, are they really capable of, of leading you through a crisis? And, uh, I think the best people I have run into are people that really are forged from going through that experience. And the best of all leaders are people who have thought through what they're going to do when there's a crisis, long before there is a crisis.
1: Now, you weren't immune to crises as a CEO at Baxter. Tell us about the biggest crisis you faced when you were CEO and how you handled it and what was the learnings from it.
2: Sure. Um, well, you can imagine when you're, you're running a multi-billion-dollar company, uh, globally, there's going to be things, again, not if, but when, when they're going to go wrong, and there's a- any number of them. Uh, one of the ones that uh, I think ended up receiving a lot of publicity was in 2001, when uh, several people that were on uh, Baxter uh, dialyzer equipment ended up uh, passing away uh, in Spain, uh, and then following up in, uh, and also in Croatia. And at that point in time, obviously, when you're a healthcare company, and your whole focus is doing what you can to provide assistance to people with life-threatening situations. Uh, when somebody dies potentially because of your product, uh, it's you know nothing could be worse than that. And so, dealing with that, making sure that you know we're going to do the right thing for the families, for the patients, understanding: do we recall the product? Do we close the facility? Uh, how quickly do we end up finding alternative equipment for people that? Are in a dire situation where if they if they're not properly dialyzed they're, they're going to pass away because uh, this whole dialyzer performed the function of the kidney. Uh, it's it's about as bad as things it can get.
1: Now, as a CEO and as a leader, uh, and I th- I know many people aspire to being leaders of organizations, but one thing many people don't fully understand is the full weight of the responsibility, particularly when you're going through a crisis. Can you describe the weight of that role that you were in on what it did to you, how you responded to it, how you dealt with it?
2: Sure. And and so Tom, just to, to, uh, to put this into context and, and I now I used to talk about this a lot at Baxter. Now I do this in, in all of my classes at Northwestern, Uh, The Kellogg School of Management, the way I describe it, Tom, with your background, I'm sure you've seen this as well, is that if you think about what's going to happen in in any role, when things go wrong, you know what's going to happen. You're going to have worry, fear, anxiety, pressure, and stress, just to name five. And when that happens, uh, it can become very difficult for people to perform at, at the top of their game. And if we wait till it happens, so just assume, you know, God forbid, Tom, you're in the middle of a crisis or you've got a real problem and you're upset. And I say, well, hey, Tom, don't worry about it. We'll get through it. Well, it's too late. You're already upset. Worry, fear, anxiety, pressure and stress have already hit you. And I think that the secret to all of this, Tom, is if you're an effective leader, I think what you're going to do is you're going to be what I call self-reflective. You're going to take the time before, and I'll say that several times, before the problem occurs to ask yourself, what am I going to do when? Not if. What am I going to do when these things happen? And the only way I know to prepare for these things, Tom, is to be what I call self-reflective, where instead of running around like crazy, you take a short amount of time. Everybody's busy, but you take a short amount of time to be self-reflective. And for that, I mean, you've turned off the noise. You've turned off the gadgets. You get off by yourself, and you ask yourself, I think, some of the key things that a value-based leader needs to ask themselves. What are my values? What's my purpose? No kidding around what really matters. What kind of example do I want to set for other people? What kind of a leader do I want to be? And what I realized early on as a result of that whole self-reflective process is that I decided before, before a crisis occurred what I would do in a crisis, and it's really a a combination of two things, Tom. Number one, I, with a lot of people's help, a lot of people's help, will try to do the right thing. We'll try to do the right thing, and number two, we'll do the best we can do. And it's very interesting, Tom, but if you live beyond words, if you can convince yourself that no matter what happens, we'll do the right thing, we'll do the best we can do. We'll do the right thing, we'll do the best we can do. I would argue, Tom, worry, fear, anxiety, pressure, and stress can be significantly reduced. They can never be eliminated. We're human, so welcome to the human race. And some bosses we've had would say, hey, Tom, a little bit of pressure is not all bad. But when you have a tremendous amount of pressure, you either figure out how you're going to deal with it or or it's just going to overcome you.
1: And did you have that all figured out when you went through this crisis with the dialysis units, or is this something that has evolved over time?
2: Uh, this this was something, Tom, I put together literally uh, when I was a, a student at Kellogg almost 40 years ago, because I, I actually, for a whole lot of reasons, beca- became pretty self-reflective. I read a lot about it. I realized you know, this whole idea of, wait a minute, why do I need to be self-reflective? And people say, boy, for a guy who studied mathematics and accounting is self reflection It sounds a little qualitative. Where, where Where's the calculus? Where, where's the analytical side? And I always tease folks... Uh, Tom, that I put this into three equations is to explain to people why everything, Tom, everything related to leadership starts with self-reflection. And it's a, a little three-part equation for you. It goes like this.
1: Part one. Let's come back and yeah. do the three-part equation after the break. And we're gonna Perfect. we're up against a break and we're gonna be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, Harry Kramer Jr. Thank you for listening and thank you for spreading the word about the mentors radio. We have doubled our podcast downloads. Make sure you tell your friends. Go to our website. TheMentorsRadio.com and click on past shows. This is Tom Laurie and this is The Mentors Radio.
0: And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is
1: Tom Laurie and today we're joined by Harry Kramer Jr., who is a professor of leadership at Northwestern University's. Kellogg School of Management, and we're discussing value based leadership and its importance during a crisis. Remember, you can tune into this show or any previous show via podcast and iTunes, TuneIn, Spotify, Google, and more on any device at any time. Subscribe at thementorsradio.com. Harry, when we um, left the last segment, you were talking about the formula. Could you continue and tell us more about your three part formula?
2: Sure. So when when people will ask me, they'll say, boy, this whole self-reflection thing, why Why is it the key to leadership? And I tease folks the following three parts here, uh, Tom. Part one, if I'm not self-reflective, if I'm not self-reflective, is it possible for, for me to know myself? I doubt it. The second part is, if I don't know myself, is it possible for me to lead myself? I would doubt that. And the third part is, if I can't lead myself, how can I lead other people? A then B, B then C, C then E. Transitive property equality from uh, Algebra 1, Tom, it, it, it really matters. It, this whole self-reflection piece, I think, becomes the cornerstone so that when, not if, when a crisis occurs, we, we know what we'll do. It may not be easy, because when you say you're going to do the right thing, it does have that little asterisk attached to it, right, what is the right thing? So I'm not bright enough to figure this out by myself. So I better surround myself with very good people whose values are there, who I can count on, that'll help me figure out, okay, what is the right thing to do in an uncertain world, and we'll do the best we can do.
1: So what do you do? I mean, this is not something that just happens, uh, and you can, obviously, you read about it. And you you must have some daily tri, uh, rituals or things that you do. What What is it that you do to make sure you're on point when it comes to self-reflection?
2: Sure. I'm smiling, Tom, because I, 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 have the students will ask me this, and I have a, I have a couple things that, that I'll do that I'll share with you. The first thing is we're all busy, Tom. You know, And I always say when I talk to groups of CEOs or C-level officers, I'll always say we're all real busy. We're all very, very busy. Um, but the reality of life is there's so many things to do that if you're as conscientious as a lot of your listeners, well, I'll just go faster and faster. This is where the multitasking kicks in. And I will always say to people, have we? This is a big question, Tom. Have many people confused activity and productivity? Have we confused that or are we moving so fast? We don't know whether we're being productive. Let's just keep moving. And the practice that I started a long time ago is what I call the ability to be self-reflective. And at the end of every day, I I actually go through a self-examination time at the end of every day. Um, And... Many people can do it different ways. I'm not a morning guy, five children, a lot of teaching, a lot of boards. For me, it's usually midnight, uh, and I will go through a personal self-examination for 15 minutes. Mine goes a little bit like this, Tom. What did I say I was gonna do today? What did I actually do? What am I proud of? What am I not proud of? How did I lead people? How did I follow people? If I lived today over again, Tom, what would I have done differently and then the last one is if I have tomorrow, being fully well aware that sooner or later I won't. But if I do have tomorrow, and I'm a learning person, based on what I learned today, how will I operate differently tomorrow? On whatever dimension of your life has any significance, uh, whether you are uh, a parent or or a, a sibling, uh, your your spouse. Uh, whatever your spiritual orientation is, have you have you got your life in order? And if not, why not? And I, I find that daily self reflection to be remarkably helpful. Students will say to me, do you do it every night?" And I'll say, "No, I, I do this every night." Um, and the way I explain it is, uh, if all of us on this call are uh, are up till midnight, most people will brush their teeth before they go to bed because it's a habit they got into, you know, when they were two or three years old, and this is a habit for me. And then they'll say, Tom, well, do you write? It? You have to write it down? And I'll say, I don't know if you have to write it down. I do, because if I don't write it down, am I being self-reflective or am I just daydreaming, particularly if I've had a couple of glasses of wine, Tom? I'm not sure which.
1: <laughs> this is Tom Lauer. You're listening to the Mentors Radio Show. Today we have leadership professor Harry Kramer, Jr., who went from a Fortune 500 CEO to a favorite Northwestern University professor. Well, let's go back on uh, this reflection thing. Uh, it sounds a little bit like the Ignatian spiritual exercises, which uh, if, i I suspect you're familiar with those, where actually they do the uh, the Jesuits do it twice a day, I think they start the day, middle of the day, and late in the day it sounds very similar to that tom, you
2: you're a very <laughs> you're a very, very perceptive guy because that's exactly what where this comes from. and then i I'll, I'll tell you another little story, Tom. Because uh, the students will say, well, how did you start this? How did you start this? Well, here, here's a little story that goes along with this, Tom. So uh, when I was, I went to a small college in Wisconsin, uh, Lawrence University. And when I was a senior, I met a young woman who was a freshman. In fact, it was actually worse than that, Tom. It was her first day of college. But I ran the checkout desk at the library. So you couldn't take a book out if I didn't know who you were. So I started to date her. But I'm a senior. She's a freshman. I graduate early. I moved down to Chicago. But And I tell my five children they can't do this now, Tom, but 40-some um, years ago, I uh, what I ended up doing is I used to hitchhike up to visit her every two or three weeks, about 183 miles from uh, Evanston, Illinois, up to Appleton, Wisconsin. And this went well for about two or three months, Tom, until her father called me, a very, very intense, serious guy from St. Paul, Minnesota. And he said, hey, I know what's going on. You're dating my daughter. She's 17 years old. This sounds kind of serious. We need to get together. I said, "Super, Tom, come on down to Chicago." No, you come to Minnesota. And I thought, okay, well, I, I uh, okay, fine. He said, "Well, I'll pick you up at the airport." And he goes, "Here's a weekend that you can meet me." So the first mistake I made, Tom, for those not from Minnesota, it was the first weekend in December. You know, 20 below zero, snowing like crazy. I get off the plane. I'm thinking, are we going to go to a Minnesota Viking game? You know, what are we going to do? And he said, no, no, no. He said, you've got to spend a little time thinking about how you're treating my daughter, your values, whatever. Well, we're going to go on a retreat together. And I said, What? what's a retreat? And he goes, well, you'll spend a little bit of time thinking about your values and your purpose. So then I thought to myself, I didn't say super. I'm just listening carefully. And he said, now there's something I should tell you before we start. He said, it's three days. So we're going to go over there tonight. And he said, I better tell you this before we start. He said, it's a silent retreat. And I said, Tom, well, what does that mean? It's a silent retreat. He said, well, uh, you can't shut up for three minutes. You you, you will not be talking for the next three days. And that's when I asked myself, Tom, the obvious question, how much do I like this guy's daughter, right? Um, But being a finance guy, you know, sunk cost, I'm already there. I might as well check this whole thing out. So I did this, and to your point, Tom, it was run by the Jesuits. It was the Jesuit Retreat Center in, at Lake Elmo in St. Paul, and uh, you know they literally silent, no talking uh, except the Jesuit would talk. The bell would ring every three hours, and they give you things to think about. You know what? What are your values? What are your purpose? Are, are you living the life that you know that Christ would expect you to live? So I did this whole thing for three days, pretty pretty crazy, three days silence, and at the end of it, the last day they said. This should not be. This should not be once a, um, uh, once a one-time deal. You should spend 15 minutes a day doing a personal self-examination. So I've been doing that, and the surprise to people, the very big surprise to people, uh, is I married his daughter, and Tom. For the last now 40 consecutive years, the first weekend in December, I go through this three-day silent retreat uh, with the Jesuits up in uh, Saint Paul, Minnesota.
1: And have you? Uh I mean, you've got your children. You're a model for your children, uh, both in life and in your career, and other things that you participate. Have they picked up on this? Are they they understand the value yeah, my, of this?
2: My daughter, my my uh, my wife goes on. Uh, 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 this one's all men. My wife goes on an all women's uh, silent retreat uh, once a year, uh, and takes my daughters. And uh, I take taken my oldest son. He's done that. I take my brother, my brother-in-law um and uh we do this we do this in fact the way i think about it tom when you and i are in business we have a strategic plan and then we also have an operating plan so i thought why wouldn't you do the same thing as an individual so once a year i spend three days thinking about how i could improve myself as a leader as a father spiritually uh for three days once a year and then i do a 15 minute check-in every day
1: well that's we're gonna come back talk a little bit more about that uh this is uh Tom Laurie, we're going to have to take a quick commercial break. We are with Harry Kramer Jr., the author of Your 168, Finding Purpose and Satisfaction in a Value-Based Life. Remember, you can take The Mentor's Radio Show with you anywhere by subscribing to our podcast at TheMentor'sRadio.com. This is Tom Laurie, and this is The Mentor's Radio Show.
0: And now... Back to the Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business.
1: Welcome back. This is Tom Loy, and today we are joined by Harry Kramer, Jr., who is a professor of leadership at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management, and we're talking about leadership, leading in crisis, and just being a great leader. Remember, you can hear us on the Salem Radio Network in California and Texas and online anytime at the thementorsradio.com or on any podcast platform, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify. So we were talking about reflection in the last segment and I love the Ignatian exercises and for those that aren't familiar, it's uh, St. Ignatius who is the founder of the Jesuit Order and you can learn more about this just by searching on spiritual exercises and St. Ignatius and you'll learn about the spiritual exercises that uh, our guest is talking about. Now, tell us a little bit about where you grew up in, obviously, Wisconsin. You went to Lawrence up there towards, I think it's in Appleton, isn't it? And tell us a little bit about Correct. your... Uh, in Appleton, Wisconsin. Your, your, mm-hmm. Yeah, tell us about growing up in Wisconsin.
2: Well, so, no, actually, I, I grew up, uh, I was born in New York, my dad was a salesman, so I spent a lot of time uh, growing up in uh, in St. Paul, excuse me, in uh, Pennsylvania. We lived outside of Pittsburgh, and then uh, I went to high school in, in Scranton, Pennsylvania, sort of north, northeastern Pennsylvania, um, and then moved uh, moved to the Midwest right when I was graduating from, from high school and then had the opportunity to go to Lawrence University as a math major and then, then come to uh, Chicago. But uh, I have, uh, I'm the oldest, I've got... Uh, four, three brothers and a sister and very, very close family. And, uh, I think my, my parents and my, uh, my grandparents, my uncles, we were very, very close. And I think I I came from a sort of pretty self-reflective group to begin with before I even got into this whole, uh, Jesuit, uh, spiritual exercises. But, uh, I'd say we had a, you know, we never, uh, we didn't, we didn't grow up with a lot, but we were very happy. And, uh, had a, had a, i think a wonderful upbringing, very, very focused on you know sort of what was important and what was not important, where family uh, and your spiritual roots i think played a played a very very big part
1: and when you were a teenager, did you have any idea of what you were going to be doing with your life?
2: Um, no it, well a, a couple of uh, a couple of thoughts one was that um I was pretty good with numbers, and I was pretty analytical, and I, I love math. Um, but I, I think maybe one of the big leadership lessons of, of how how to combine your your personal life and your spiritual life. I, another another little story, Tom, that uh, kind of gives you perspective. My uh, when we were up in Scranton, Pennsylvania. My uncle, uh, Father Francis, was my, my dad's brother, was a priest, and he'd come over every Friday night. Uh, to play cards. They played Pinochle, which I guess is a game that they played out east. And uh, and they have, we have dinner and they play cards. And so at that point in time, Tom, uh, when I would be going to church, at least back then, this is like in the, uh, what, this would be like the late 60s, um, you know, the priest would always say, hey, we need to pray for vocations. We don't have enough priests. We've got this tremendous shortage of priests. And I would listen to this, and then being kind of an analytical guy, being the oldest, maybe a little we're feeling a little responsible, I, I, I think I was like 13 or 14, and I grabbed my uncle, Father Francis, and after dinner I said, hey, Father I need to talk to you. And he said, what's, what's on your mind? I said, well, I decided, I thought a lot about it, I decided I'm, I'm, I'm going to become a priest. And he said, oh, Harry, this is fantastic, you've got a calling, this is just wonderful— and I said, well, well, Francis, to be honest with you, I, I'm positive I don't have a calling because I'd really rather not do it, but I, I, I think I'm gonna do it. And he goes, Well, why is that? He said, Well, I'm just trying to look at this in reality. I said, Look, we have a shortage of priests, we need more priests, and all I can tell you is that I've been looking at this. If any of my friends become priests, we're gonna have a real problem. We're gonna have a real problem. So I said, Somebody's gotta do it. I think I got I got the short straw on this one. And he kinda smiled, he started chuckling, and he goes, Look he goes, if you get a calling someday, that would be great. He said, but here's what I'm going to tell you. He said, I'm a priest. I have a vocation. I love doing it. But he said, I will tell you, when I get a little self-reflective, he said, most of the people that I can impact are the people who come to church. And he said, not that they don't need it, but I'm always wondering what would it be like to impact the people that, you know, were in you know in business or in uh, other areas. And so he said, here's what I'd ask you to do. He said, do me a favor. And uh, what I ask you is, if you go into business, whatever you do, you know, really, really try to be an example, a positive example, you know, consistent with, with your values and what you've been taught uh, in terms of what really matters in life. And I thought, you know, okay, that's that, that makes sense. And I got to tell you, Tom, that's something that I that I never forgot. And uh, people say to me, well, geez, when you were the CEO of Baxter, you know, boy, you had a lot of power. What, what, what'd you think? And I said, you know, I never really thought of his power. I I, when we have fifty five thousand team members at Baxter, I literally thought, Tom, you know what? I I am blessed. I have an enormous opportunity to be a positive example uh, for an awful lot of people by what I do uh, and, and the example that I set. And I always felt that way at Baxter. And now, when I serve on a lot of boards or when I'm teaching my my leadership classes at Kellogg, I think to myself, boy, what what a, what a uh, how blessed I am to be able to have a to be able to have potentially have a little bit of a positive impact on the next generation of people that are going to lead things uh, in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a positive way, consistent with what your, what your values are, and uh, so for me, it's a, it's a little bit of a calling, and it's something that I that I that I love doing, Tom.
1: Well, it's the ans- the essence of being a mentor. Uh, this is Tom Laurie. You're listening to Mentor's Radio Show. Today, we have Harry Kramer, Jr., who is the creator of values-based leadership concept. So as you were talking about values, let's talk about the creation of, or you? I, I, I mean, it's discovery. I don't know if you call it creation, but you're an apostle of values-based leadership. Tell us a little bit more about that. And you, you touched on it a little bit in the first segment, but why don't you tell us some more?
2: Sure. So, so Tom, and I, and I talk about this now in, 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 all, in all three of the books, and, and here, here's sort of the process. The first thing you have to do, I think, is I always say opinions, not answers, Tom, is you have to figure out how, how can I become a value-based leader? And, and I talk, Tom, as you well know, uh, really about what I call four principles in the first book, From Values to Action. And they really are, how do I become self-reflective? We talked a little bit about that. How do I develop a balanced perspective? That's number two. How do I develop true self-confidence? And I always put true in quotes. And number four, how do I have genuine humility? And I put genuine in quotes. And I, and I have a firm belief, Tom, that on the journey, because it's a journey. As you, as you well know, Tom, leadership isn't a destination. It's a journey. So I can get better every day I'm given. And if I can become more self-reflective, have a better balanced perspective, have true self-confidence and genuine humility, I can start to lead myself Tom and then as I said then I can start to lead other people and that's the whole focus from values to action
1: and you have uh, a new book coming out and the next segment let's touch on that and your other books and I want to talk some more about some of these aspects of value-based leadership we've talked on reflection i come back and talk in greater detail about confidence and balanced perspective we're going to cut cut away for a break we're Uh, This is Tom Laurie. You're listening to The Mentors Radio. We have as our guest today Harry Kramer Jr., who is the apostle of value based leadership. Tom Laurie, and this is The Mentor
0: Show. We'll see you in just a minute. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Loy, and today we are joined by Harry Kramer,
1: Jr., who is a professor of leadership at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management, and he's the former chairman and CEO of Baxter International. We're discussing value-based leadership and its importance in leading and particularly through a crisis. And in the last segment, Harry, we talked about your books. And if you would go through each of the books and show how they link together, and let's uh, zero in on some of these attributes that are needed for value-based leadership. Uh, We've already talked about uh, reflection. Let's talk a little bit more about the balanced perspective and true confidence.
2: Sure. So the way it it all sort of fits together, Tom, is what I got asked when I first started teaching was, no kidding around, how do you become a value-based leader? Uh, And that first book addressed that in terms of uh, from values to action, the four principles, which we'll come back to in a minute. Then the second thought was, okay, well, that's how you become a value-based leader, Well, then, how do you go from being a value-based leader to building a value-based organization? And that's the second book, basically called Becoming the Best, Building a World-Class Values-Based Organization. And then about a year ago, uh, the students started saying, okay, that's how you be a value-based leader. That's how you develop a value-based organization. How do you live a value-based life? And that's what I just finished the third book, Tom, that comes out in May, uh, which is basically going to be called Your 168 which, by the way, is a number of hours in a week, 24-7, finding purpose and satisfaction in a, in a value-based life. And as, as you correctly mentioned earlier, Tom, it really all does start with, with being and becoming a value-based leader. And we talked about the importance of, of self-reflection, but the second big component you and I have discussed really is how do you develop a balanced perspective? And, and the way I think about this, and I mentioned this to students and executives, as you well know, Tom, uh, you can bring up any topic. You name the topic. We can talk about North Korea. We can talk about immigration. We can talk about gun control. You name the topic. Immediately, many people have very, very strong opinions, very strong opinions. The problem, as you know, Tom, is that they have virtually no understanding of opinions or perspectives other than their own. And I think the value-based leader, partially as a result of self-reflection, develops a balanced perspective. And what I mean by that, Tom, is they take the time to understand all sides of the story or, as I always quote uh, St. Francis, who I really believe at one point said that what you really do as an effective leader and a person is that you seek to understand before you're understood. I say that at least five times a day. You seek to understand before you're understood. So if I'm having a discussion with you, Tom, I will try to never say, hey, Tom, I don't understand what you're talking about, because I actually believe that's ignorant. If I take the time and I really listen, I can understand your perspective, then I can decide, do I agree or disagree? But I truly want to understand, because if I can understand multiple perspectives, I'm going to make a much better decision as a leader. And that's that importance of literally being quiet enough to truly understand as many perspectives as possible.
1: And true confidence.
2: Yeah. And on this one, Chief, I call it true self-confidence. And uh, a CEO the other day said to me, well, what's the true, Harry? I mean, you're either self-confident or you're not. And I always remind people, Tom, you think about it. There's a lot of people you and I have worked with who can act very self-confident, who have no self-confidence at all. The macho, do what I told you to do, I've never made a mistake crowd. And the way I describe people with true self-confidence is very simple, Tom. They know what they know. They know what they don't know, and they're willing to admit what they don't know. In fact, one executive said to me, well, geez, Harry, uh, how do you know if you have true self-confidence? How do you know? And I said, well, here's two questions, Tom, and you can use this with your listeners. There's two questions that will really help you on the journey of do you have true self-confidence. The first question is, are you comfortable to say, I don't know? You know, Tom, that's a good question. I don't know, but I'll tell you what, Tom, tell me how fast you did answer because I do know somebody who does know. But I just don't happen to know. I'm not going to wing it. I'm not going to pretend that I do. I just don't. Second question, have you reached a point in your lifetime where you're willing to say I was wrong? Forget what I said. What Joel said makes more sense. Let's do that. Are you willing to admit that you don't know? And it's very interesting, Tom, because sometimes I'll run into leaders and they'll say, you know, it is a self-reflection thing. Man, that makes a lot of sense. Balance, perspective. Yeah, this true self. I got a real problem with this thing. I said, "What's that?" He said, "Well, Harry, I got eight hundred people working for me. I don't want them to know what I don't know. I hold my cards close to the vest. I'm not going to let them know what I don't know. What do you think of that?" And of course, I'm the one who's got to explain to this guy, Tom. They already know what you don't know. They're they're worried you don't know what you don't know. And I think if you're if you can get comfortable in your own skin. And by the way, you may have remembered him, but Mr. Graham, who was the founder of Baxter and one of my mentors, at one time early on, I think when I was becoming the chief financial officer, he sat me down, Tom, and he said, any role you're ever in, this is probably true for all of our listeners, he said, any role you're ever in the rest of your life, there's only two things you ever have to know. I said, oh, Mr. Graham, what's that? He said, well, the first thing you have to know is what do you know? What are your skill sets? What are you good at? What do you know? He said, the only other thing you ever have to know is who knows what you don't know? I said, Mr. Graham, this is going to work out great. i got like 30 people who know what I don't know. I keep them very close. You know what you know, and you know what you don't know. Um, and you realize, if as long as I can surround myself with a team of people that are brighter than I am, and I'm rewarding them, and I'm giving them the credit, and I'm treating them in a, in a very, very open way, the way I like to be treated, I'm going to do remarkably well. And so this whole perspective of, of true self-confidence becomes incredibly important
1: well I had to smile as you were talking through uh, that I certainly agree 150% about people who come off as knowing everything as being very vulnerable and they tend to put distance between you and them by knowledge or assumed knowledge because they don't want to be seen for what they are so it's a very quick sign and I, I fortunately in my career I was a, a turnaround specialist in uh, American Hospital Supply which merged with Baxter and I ended up in 11 different specialties not just there but after uh, I left American and the world of startups so I've been in 11 different specialties where some people had 30 years of knowledge in cardiovascular or ophthalmology and I've I've always gone into situations knowing I didn't know a lot of things. And it's very humbling. Uh, but I found that it's been a, a tremendous uh, value for me personally.
2: Absolutely, Tom. It's so, so well said, because when you're vulnerable, people can relate to you. You know, if I become the general manager and I got a lot of financial background, but I don't know much about marketing and you're on marketing in the, in the firm and you're really good for me to say, rather than acting like Mr. Know-it-all to say, hey, Tom, you know a lot more about this. How do you think we ought to handle this? If you were me, what would you do? Well, immediately we're drawn together, right? You know, the more vulnerable you are and the more people can relate to you. In fact, there's a very, very simple model, Tom, very, very simple model, leadership has nothing to do with titles and organizational charts, right? Leadership has everything to do with the ability to influence people. And the only way I know how to influence people, Tom, is you have to be able to relate to people. So if I can relate to you, maybe I can influence you, and maybe I can lead you. Right? And this whole idea that I got to be superior, I got to know all the answers. And you've seen these people, Tom, people that have to act like they know all the answers. It's like carrying an anvil around. It's, it's very, very difficult. It's very hard to do as opposed to, hey, Tom, you know what? I don't know. Hey, Tom, how fast do you get an answer? I know somebody who knows. I'll get back to you right away. Right? I'm not complacent. You're, you're the boss. You want to know. I'll get you an answer. But I just don't happen to know,
1: and that's okay. Well, when you talk about uh, titles and all of that, you know, what made me think of is that in any organization, there are informal leaders who are doing all of those things. Uh, And I've learned that that's one of the important things of leading is finding the informal leaders. And a lot of people don't realize that leadership is something that we can all work on because you can uh, you know, you've got a family, you, you, there's a leading, leading in the family, there's leading in nonprofits, there's leading in a lot of activities. I think some people think that they're going to figure out this leadership when they become the CEO, and I keep telling them that we have an opportunity every day of learning how to lead and practicing it in our own life. I don't know if you uh, and your students talk, talk about that at all, but it's not an isolated uh, skill just to business.
2: You know, Tom, you're you're right on. You're right on. And when somebody says to me, uh, Harry, who are the best leaders? I always say, Tom, to your point, they're the leaders who start leading long before, long before they have anybody reporting to them, right? And I'll use the example, right? If you don't report to me and Joel doesn't report to me, uh, but I got to get something done, the way I'm going to get you to do something is not because you report to me because you don't. So I've got to be able to relate to you and influence you so that you can buy into it. Well, the beauty of that, Tom, is if I really learned to lead through influence, now it's 10 years later. Now you and Joe work for me. Well, now, instead of you asking you to do something because, well, Tom, you work for me, now it's going to be, hey, Tom, my boss brought this topic up. What do you think we ought to do, Tom? Does this make sense? What do you think makes sense? Right? And let's get this done because you're doing things not because I got power over you, but because... I've, I've explained this to you and you relate to me and you want to get it done because it just seems like the right thing to do it has an enormous impact on the kind of leader you become you're absolutely right
1: excellent excellent advice we're going to return in a few short minutes with our guest today Harry Kramer jr. Northwestern University's prize professor of leadership. And you will find all of our show notes and links at the mentorsradio.com. When you're there, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any other shows. This is Tom Laurie, and this is the Mentors
0: Radio Show. And now, back to the Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business.
1: Welcome back. This is Tom Laurie, and today we're joined by Harry Kramer Jr who is a professor of leadership at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management. We're discussing leadership, leading in crisis, and learning how to lead. Uh, Harry, what would you tell someone? Now, we've gone through a lot of elements of leadership. What would you tell somebody today that is struggling to lead during the current uh, crisis that we're going through? What's the most important thing?
2: What I'd say, Tom, is a little little model, a little three-step model, uh, because often in a crisis, people are— They slow down. They're not sure how to react. They're afraid of saying anything because they don't have enough information. They're worried about what they say. Uh, They shut down and they're not communicating. And I always argue when you're in a crisis, however much you communicate normally, in a crisis you need to communicate three times as often. And rather than worrying about, oh, I'm not sure I know all the information, a little three-step process, Tom. Number one, you tell people what you know. OK, not made up stuff, not falseness. You tell people what you know, but based on the relationships you have with really good people who help you. Number two, you tell people what you don't know. Hey, Tom, we don't know the answer to these two or three things. We just don't know that right now. And number three, we talked about how quickly Tom will get back to people with what we don't know. So you're being open. You're being honest. You're being vulnerable. You're building up trust and integrity. And people say, you know what? Hey, they don't have all the answers, but they're going to get back to us as soon as they can. And I think that model of open, honest communication plays an enormous role in your ability to lead in a crisis.
1: Probably is uh, true as well in, th- in the family.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> no matter what the issue is, I would argue it can be a family issue, a spiritual issue, you know, no matter what it is. Here's what we know. Yeah. So we don't know. So quickly we'll get back to you with what we didn't know.
1: Who? So as our this is our maybe last question for the day. Um, you've met a lot of people in your lifetime of all different uh, walks of life, uh, levels, income levels. You're dealing with students and everything else. Who are the people? What are what are the attributes that they share? That, uh, that you found to be the most uh, happy, uh, the most joy in life?
2: Um, so I, I guess several things come to mind, and I, I can give you some names, but the people in my mind that are the happiest people are the people that feel that what they're doing is consistent with their values, and they have the ability to be a positive influence on other people through through how they live their life. Um, I, I see this in several professors at Kellogg. One, one of them is a professor Kevin Merne. His enthusiasm, his it's it's infectious. He just loves doing what he's doing. He loves being available to students. He answers every potential question or problem, whether it's personal or professional. Uh, just a tremendous. Where they 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 receive their happiness by making other people happy.
1: We're going to have to cut off. We run out of time.
2: Okay, ah. no problem.
1: But um, we'll catch you again that's it until next week we've been we've been with Harry Kramer Jr we've been talking about leading in a crisis leadership how to become a leader Uh, Harry is a Northwestern professor of leadership at Northwestern University in the Kellogg School you can find a link to Harry's just released book Your 168 Finding Purpose and Satisfaction in a Values-Based Life on our website TheMentorsRadio.com you can learn more about this and other shows by going to our website when you are there make it easy for yourself and subscribe to future shows. Remember, too, that you can listen to us online, any device, anytime at TheMentorsRadio.com or on any podcast platform. And join us next week at the same time for the next edition of The Mentors Radio. Until then, this is Tom Laurie signing off for today. Remember to be all that you can be and keep the candle
0: lit for all who struggle in the darkness. It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business.